0: Welcome back everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the impact of the IT industry, both the good and the bad. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plough Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Brian Link, EVP of Products and Services here at Plough, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions and with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face dealing with IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. On today's episode, I'm very excited to have Dr. John Petroselli as our guest. John is a professor of psychology at Wake Forest University, my business school alma mater, go Deeks, where he has worked since receiving his PhD from Indiana in 2007. John is a social psychologist who specializes in the study of judgment and decision-making, counterfactual thinking, and most critical for our discussion today, the concept of bullshitting as a social behavior. He's even written a book for the general public called the life changing science of detecting bullshit and I can't recommend it enough. Now you might be surprised to learn that bullshitting is a subject of serious academic study, but as John and I dig deep into the subject matter, I think you'll see why what he's doing is such a fertile and important area for psychological research. I hope you find the insights he shares as interesting and relevant as I did. Bottom line, Bullshit doesn't just exist in politics and sales, it's everywhere, so we all need to be able to recognize it and deal with it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Petroselli. Hi John, welcome to Cut the Shit. How are you today? Great, great. Thanks for having me, Brian. So uh, where are you today?
1: I'm at my office on Wake Forest University campus. Uh, the semester has just just started, so...
0: Perfect. So you're literally... About seven miles, eight miles away from me, I think, um, given where my house sits. So um, I guess for, you know, we'll say that's down the street. It's not, it's a little, it's it's a long street or it's a a bit of an interstate, but it's not far. So um, it's uh, nice to have somebody close by, you know, um, I guess we could have done this face to face, but let's face it, this makes things real simple. Uh, You can, you can jump out of your day and I can jump out of mine and we can, we can do this thing. So thanks again for, uh, thanks again for joining me. Sure thing. Sure thing. Um, I've asked this question to a variety of folks, just given the kind of on the back end of COVID and the sort of the travel shutdown people uh, experience for a good bit of time. Have you been traveling much lately? And if so, have you gone anywhere uh, interesting or fun?
1: Actually, it, it hasn't affected my travel at all. I, I, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm actually more introverted than I ever thought I was before March of 2020. Um, so it hasn't really affected me much, but my travel, uh, the past year has, has been pretty normal. I was in Manhattan, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, before that was in new Orleans, um, before that was in Chicago.
0: So here and there, so you've been around
1: pretty much here and there everywhere. Um, I'm glad things are getting back to, to normal.
0: Yeah, I was in New York uh, in mid July, so just over a month ago, and I was, particularly in Midtown, I was really struck by uh, how much how much vacancy I saw um, in, in terms of of space available. Um, I couldn't tell if that was like traditional commercial or commercial retail, but it was a little bit shocking. There were lots and lots of people, so it wasn't um, yeah, you know, it wasn't. It didn't seem to foot foot traffic seemed to be fine, but. There certainly that that felt like a, an overhang from uh, from from the shutdowns for sure, or at least the the lack of traffic there for a period of time. So
1: well, I I, I learned quickly why in New York there was such an outbreak of COVID in in the, in sort of the beginning months, because coming back on the subway from the Yankee game on a yeah. Thursday night,
0: it's not just body to body, it's 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 nose to nose. Yeah,
1: it, it, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You get, you get up close and personal with millions of your, of of people you didn't know were your best friends. Um, and that's, that's sort of the day-to-day existence for sure. Yeah. For and sure. I'm,
1: from Pits- I'm from Pittsburgh, so I'm a Pirates fan and I've never, I've never witnessed that many people on a Thursday night game, but I guess in New York. It-
0: yeah. They've got a, I mean, I'll give them credit. They got a great baseball fan. I mean, rooting for them do respect to those who do, but it's sort of like, you know, it's like rooting for the, I don't know the, um, I mean, you know, the corporate America or something. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to feel too sorry for the Yankees fans when they lose. I mean, it's, you know, it hadn't been very much of a rough go in general. So, um, that's for sure. Um, well, one last kind of question before we sort of jump in and that's, you know, you've been, you've been teaching for a while and you've had a bunch of experience in the classroom and then you've also had, uh, whether you wanted it or not lots of experience with online education um over the past uh year plus or at least more than maybe you had before um can you tell us about an interesting use of technology or a hack that you witnessed either from a colleague or from a student something that you found interesting that you you know kind of caught you off guard
1: well the thing that surprised me most um I don't think I will go back so so obviously meetings on Zoom and and classes in Zoom um uh, were very common the very at the very beginning of the shutdown and then the semester following. But w- w- the surprise that I found was was meetings with Zoom with maybe four or five people, four or five students. I found that those meetings are so much more productive. Um, for whatever reason, I find Zoom meetings, people are more prepared. They uh, have more clear questions. They we just get much more done.
0: Do you have a theory on on why? Maybe.
1: Well, it's well the the ability to access uh, information straight from the same screen that you're watching other people and you know can, you know so perhaps maybe their access to to the web or or whatever documents they might be working on together if it's a if it's a team oriented kind of task. Um, other than that, I'm not really sure. I mean, perhaps people were feeling well. Actually, people were looking at me, you know. And there's maybe a <laughs> bit of a spotlight effect, right? And so right. there's more, maybe perhaps more accountability. And I just find if I have a meeting with with one or five students in in my office or in after class, it's just not nearly as as, as productive. And so I choose. I I prefer to have meetings with four or five students on zoom now than I do in in person. Um,
0: so that's a change for sure then. Yes. And then, but,
1: but all students actually prefer courses in person. And and so do I, but, but as far as meetings go, I think it's much more productive to do it on zoom.
0: That makes sense. I mean, you know, I think we're, we're, we're like, we're, we're not even in the first inning. Like we're just getting to, I think we're still in, in batting practice or like taking infield. Like we haven't even gotten into the game yet for understanding, uh, Remote slash hybrid, you know, work and 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 that mix of face to face versus online and how best to do that. So I, I think that's probably a fair statement to make, uh, you know, kind of writ large, whether that's education or business or whatever.
1: Yes, and my, many of the phone calls or otherwise phone calls have often been upgraded to Zoom calls now, and, and that's fine. You at least get to see each other, and and that, that works. Um, yeah. So I I don't I don't do much many phone calls. I do a lot of you know FaceTime and Zooming now for right. just about every call that I would have otherwise had on the phone.
0: Yeah, makes sense. It makes sense. All right. Well, let's kind of jump in. Um, let's get to the main event. Um, to get us started, uh, you mentioned you're at Wake Forest. Uh, you're a professor there. Give us a quick thumbnail sketch on your background and how you got started uh, as an academic slash researcher.
1: Okay. Sure. Yeah. I've I've been. Professor of psychology at Wake Forest University for... This is my 16th year now. Um, and I teach social psychology courses, uh, mainly upper-level, uh, junior and senior-level courses in psychology, social psychology, and judgment and decision-making courses. Uh, and that's that's where my background is, in social psychology, judgment and decision-making. Um, and I, I, I think I... Stumbled into the career at first. I thought I wanted to help people, you know, and, and be a counselor
0: and a clinician. You you started off in that, in that direction.
1: Yes. Yeah. I was, I was more than, more than halfway through a PhD in counseling psychology before I came to my senses and, (laughs) and realized that much more of a, a researcher and writer than I wanted to be in, in the, in the clinical arena um and so i switched specializations to social psychology and i boy did i i made the right decision because it's just the the field is really wide open with with so many rich ideas and um the focus on experimental psychology in in within social psychology is really where it's at i think that um it gives us the best answers to the research questions that we that we have so um, a, a, a popular question in social psychology is, uh, you know, wh- which which persuasive technique works best for this person under these circumstances and th- these conditions? Or how do how do we get attitudes to change? What's the relationship between attitudes and behavior? I mean, that's a that's a classic social psychological question: persuasion and influence. And I, I just became fascinated with it, and 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 the tie-in with um, experimental approaches to it. So it's not just my theoretical perspective or my own personal opinion about what works. I have to test, you know through an experiment whether or not the technique works. and And I just have a lot more respect for for that approach than uh, you know your armchair uh, Monday morning uh, quarterbacking on 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 what actually works. I just think that's much more useful to the world um than uh, just my my ideas.
0: Well, I think that's a that's a, that's a nice um I think lead in to sort of the 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 topic at hand today and we'll talk some about your book but I also think um the applicability of that in the business world because again this is a podcast. It's a business focused podcast, right? We talk about we're we're in the information technology world, but we often get into broader topics because whether you're a manager or a you know a, a an individual contributor in a technology business Or a a manufacturing business, or a services business. At the end of the day, a lot of these kinds of things cut across, right? How do you make good decisions? How do you decide, um, you know, what's true? You know, I I don't know about capital T true, but true as far as we know it within the context of the scientific method, and some of those things. So we'll we'll definitely get into that um, as as we dig. So, given, well, first congratulations on finding making that pivot before you got. Cause it can be tough in academia, you know, you can get, you can get too far down a path and oftentimes it's tough. And it sounds like, you know, I know from our previous conversation, you paid a little bit of a price for that decision in terms of your, in terms of your time to to the job market. And some of that, in fact, if I remember correctly, your mom or dad gave you a hard time about where you're ever going to actually get out of school and, and get a job or something along those lines. If I remember correctly,
1: <laughs> everyone, including some of my advisors told me not to do it, you know, just finish.
0: Right. And, You're too far down the path. Keep going. Don't don't stop. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And being a graduate student for ten years is is not recommended. uh, (laughs) uh, Certainly not financially either. So.
0: Yeah. Those stipends really. Those stipends are really. You can really. You can really. uh, uh, Heavy duty fund your 401k there with that. So.
1: Yes, (laughs) but but I made the right decision in the end. I think.
0: That's great. Well, so tell us a little bit about. You've mentioned some general kind of aspects of social psychology and some of the things you're focused on. Tell us about your current research focus. Let's drill down a little bit, um, you know, and this isn't a G-rated pro- uh, podcast, so feel free to use uh, the terminology as you do uh, in your current work.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah, so my main focus today is, is the behavior of bullshitting and trying to understand the, behavior, the social behavior to better position ourselves, give us a better vantage point to, to better detect bullshit and dispose of it properly. Um, And so I had done the first half of my career, I focused primarily on counterfactual thinking. So your would have, could have, if only thoughts that we mentally run through our minds and mentally simulate and sort of play out the consequences. You know, if only I had worn my red sweater, I didn't know that was her favorite color. If only I'd worn my red sweater and my green sweater, I probably... Uh, would have gotten her number, and she right. would have gone out that that kind of thinking, you know, always playing into some better reality than actually occurred. and i and I had a lot of data that I was looking at that that considered the relationship between counterfactual thoughts, learning, memory, and decision making. And I had uh, treasure troves of data that that really didn't make much sense. Um, and it, and it dawned on me after reading so many of the, the written examples that people were bullshitting themselves quite a bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I want to, I want to stop right there because you, you just made a, a, you used a phrase that I think is important to get out front right now. And that's, you said people are bullshitting themselves, right? And that we tend to, and and I think this discussion will, will cover a couple of different angles, but before we get too far, I want to make sure that the audience understands we're not just talking about other people bullshitting you, although that's part of it, it can be just as problematic in you bullshitting yourself, if I remember, if I understand correctly.
1: Yes, actually, the, the biggest bullshitter that we will expose ourselves to often is the self. Um, and we certainly get it from all sources and from every angles. Um, and, and what I mean spe- specifically um, about the, the substance of bullshit is, is one in which it occurs when people communicate something, either consciously or unconsciously, um, intentionally or unintentionally, they communicate something that has no connection, no regard for truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. So, So the behavior of bullshitting often comes out in a very broad array of rhetorical strategies all designed to help us sound like we know what we're talking about. Um, And it's, they're often used when, when we want to impress others or we want to influence persuade others, um, embellish something, or just simply sound like we know what we're talking about. Right.
0: And that last one feels very, very, uh, you know, I think uh, ubiquitous, right. The idea of making sure, you know, we all want to feel like we know what we're talking about. Right. I think that's, that's tough. Um, Before we get too far, because um, I sort of cut you off. You were talking about the kind of the first half of your career was not focused on bullshitting. You kind of got, you, you sort of got there. What was the spark? What was the transition point from the earlier research into the sort of, it's not necessarily a new line, but it sounds like maybe an application of some of the earlier work.
1: Yeah. Well, I was looking for <clears throat> an explanation for why the data didn't make sense. And it seemed as though no matter what the outcome, the actual outcome for an individual was, um, you know, I, I could have gotten an A on an exam, but I, I got the B plus, and here's why, if, if I did this, you know, and no matter what the case was, participants in my studies often seem to think that they had an entitlement to a desirable outcome you know, no matter if, if they had just thought about the situation long enough, they deliberated long enough that they would make the right decision. There never seemed to be a, a an entertainment of the possibility that maybe it's just not in the cards for you. You know, right. Right. <laughs> you, you would have never gotten that number, Brian, <laughs> and you <laughs> never would have had an A no matter how long you studied. And, and it's, those are possibilities, but that was never really entertained. Um, And so earlier research suggested that, well, counterfactual thinking, it helps it helps you to plan for the future. It helps in learning. It helps you make better decisions in the future. And it was I seen would, as a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be a good thing. But what what a lot of research that I've conducted and many others have conducted is people do not learn from experience as quickly as you might expect them to. They actually tend to Make the same decision over and over and over again, expecting to get a different result. And uh, and I just thought after reading Harry Frankfurt's uh, seminal paper on the subject of on bullshit in 1986, um, I couldn't find a better explanation. And and it is his definition that I use in my own empirical research. Um, this this idea that. That when you communicate something with little to no regard for truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge, that's that's when you're when you're bullshitting.
0: So so let's use that too, because I, I'm sure there's a question in most um, listeners' minds, and yes. it's one that you often address, and that's the distinction between bullshitting and lying, because those are uh, I think it's easy for people to get those two confused. So so help us understand that that difference.
1: Yeah. So so the liar when someone lies to us, they're actually concerned with the truth. You know, they are trying to get us to believe something that they don't actually believe themselves, okay? But in the case of bullshitting, the bullshitter doesn't really care, doesn't have any interest, and is not paying any attention to truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge, okay? So uh, the, the liar, again, is trying to communicate something That to as far as they know is false and they don't actually believe but the bullshitter often does believe What it is that they are communicating Um, And it's not necessarily incorrect, so Sometimes just by chance uh, By accident the bullshitter says something that's actually correct
0: a broken clock is right twice a day (laughs) phenomenon Yeah,
1: (laughs) yes, But, but in those cases if they're truly bullshitting and, and not lying, even the bullshitter wouldn't know that what they're saying is actually correct because they're not paying any attention to truth, genuine evidence or or established knowledge. but but there's also a very important social reaction uh, difference to lying and bullshitting. so so when people lie to us, we're not particularly happy with it, and there's probably going to be some consequences. at minimum, uh, they've lost our trust right, and our perceptions of their honesty is, is just gone. And so there are, there are severe consequences for that. But, but when people bullshit us, we tend to kind of pass it off as like a mild social offense and we assume that it's harmless, but, but that's, that's where we can't be more wrong is, right. is assuming that it's, that it's, that it's harmless.
0: Yeah, and we'll get we're definitely going to get to that because I want to talk some about this idea of evidence based thinking and some I know some some antidotes or we'll get to some bullshit detection and sort of some of the things, uh, some of the tools that you um, that you've identified. Um, I want to take one kind of uh, I want to talk some just a bit about the professional situation um, for you in terms of how this has gone down, um, you know, being in academia. It's not the most, it's a a very serious, uh, in general, a very serious profession. I I don't mean that negatively. I meant it has a tendency to take itself very seriously because it is. Um, It's also known for, you know, dense, um, difficult to follow language, oftentimes academics talking to other academics, not to the general public. So I'm curious the reaction to a uh, you know a serious line of empirical research based on the concept of bullshit. Uh, how how is that? What's what's the faculty meeting like uh, in that in that sense?
1: Yeah, it's funny. It, uh, there was actually this. I started this work about ten years ago, and I I talked with some of my colleagues about it. And you know we we share research all of the time. We sort of know what what each other is doing. And and among my colleagues, I had such wonderful support and interest in what I was doing. Okay. So it's, it's always been wonderful and they've always been, wow, he's studying, he's studying bullshit, right? But um, that's really interesting and, and great support. Now, outside of my colleagues with the rest of the, uh, with the rest of the enterprise of of academics and, and especially in psychology, most Social psychologists, um, uh, consumer psychology in, in business, um, communication sciences, um, even, even health psychology. They really did not know how to respond to what I was sending in, in my my research to you know to publish in the major journals within the field. Um, and I had more desk rejections than I I ever had. I only had one paper ever desk rejected before I started doing my bullshitting
0: research. Now, now what does desk rejection yeah. mean? So that,
1: that means that that the paper won't even be reviewed. You, your, your, your manuscript is already uh, with without any
0: review. They've rejected it. So they just looked at the title and said no go. <laughs> Pretty much,
1: um, and I had only had one of those in my entire career, and it's it's funny that that actual that first desk rejection was then I, I later revised and added another study and that paper is actually now published so but with with my bullshit work i've had such great difficulty getting it published and i believe it's some of my my best work and it's it's of the same standards that i would have any other experimental work but so there's been a little confusion as to like well, what what is it Um, and, and what am I trying to do? Am I trying to be cute or am I trying to be, am I trying to be intentionally provocative? And that's not it at all. I, I truly believe that bullshitting is our, is perhaps our most pervasive social behavior there is because by definition, it's almost impossible not to do. I mean, it's, we cannot have well-informed opinions about everything.
0: Right. It's impossible. Yeah. Unless we just don't, unless we stop talking, which we are not going to do, we are by definition, I mean, humans are both social animals and bullshitters by nature, nature, I guess, would be the, would be the corollary to that. Correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's almost like breathing, you know, and you have to, you, you know, if you're, if you want to be a factor in a social situation, you know, or uh, you don't want to be just a wallflower, at some point, somebody is going to expect you to share your opinion. And so we, we often feel as social animals that we are, that we have to have an opinion about everything. Right.
0: Can't be, I don't know, or I'm just not, I'm not that interested in that. Like I think about other things.
1: That's boring.
0: Right. That's just
1: too boring. So, so people feel obligated to have an opinion about everything, but they know very well that it's impossible to have a well-informed opinion about everything.
0: Okay. So let's dive in a little. You've given us, you've, you've kind of given us a little bit of a taxonomy of bullshit, but let's, let's maybe get a little more specific, um, in terms of identifying bullshit. You mentioned them earlier, but what again, are those key characteristics? How is it that we, how is it that you classify something as bullshit?
1: Yeah. So what I, what I try to do is really tap into the motivations of the individual that is, that is sharing a claim, whether it be verbal written email, whatever. So, so, so they make a claim about some reality. Okay. Or about the reasons for, for something or reasons for attitudes that they have or opinions that they have about something. And you really have to drill down was what, what is their motive? You know, when you said that a moment ago, Brian, did you have uh, did you honestly truly have an interest in genuine evidence, truth, Established knowledge, and if there's no motivation for it, then that's that's your textbook bullshitting. Now right. that varies. Sometimes you have a little bit of of interest and concern for it, but other times you have none. Um, so there's there's a there's a sort of a continuum uh, of bullshit. When I ask most of my participants in my experiments, I say, um, "Would like you, like you to tell me your opinion about?" Uh, capital punishment, um, or nuclear weapons, or why a student might be failing a course, or why uh, prisoners, when they're released from prison, often return to crime. I mean, I can give them any issue. I ask, "What is what's your attitude? What's your opinion about it?" Um, and then I ask, "Well, what are your reasons for your your attitude and your opinions about about the issue?" And then they they write their reasons, and then I give them the reasons back, and I said, "Well." When you wrote this, Brian, uh, how much were you truly concerned with genuine evidence, truth, established knowledge on a a zero to ten scale? And you have to say genuine evidence. If you just say evidence, most people confuse that for explanation.
0: Right. Or anecdotes. Right. Yeah.
1: Yes. So and usually what I get is a is a response of a six. So they're a little bit above, you know, above the midpoint. Uh, they're moderately concerned, right? So that then translates to a score of four. Um, and because bullshitting is the lack thereof of concern, right? So what I found in almost every study I've conducted is somewhere between 35 and 40% of what people communicate, that they are readily willing to report that 40, about 35 to 40% of what they communicate is bullshit. So that's a lot, right? Okay? that's that's more than a third. You know, that that's quite concerning, um, and it doesn't matter what issue. I've I've even used uh, fictitious diseases that kind of sound um, sound real that that people could have no possible knowledge on it, but that doesn't stop them from, from writing about well how to prevent it and how to treat it and right. and, and okay. things like that. So and that this is well before those studies are actually done well before. Uh, COVID nineteen. So, um, so that's what you have to do. You have to drill that down. Right. And 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 the best way to do that is to ask some questions about uh, you know. Once you've identified the claim, once you've identified the claim, you 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 have to ask. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? Right. You no, know, you, you. A clarifying have, question. A clarifying question. That's the first. That's <clears> the easiest <throat> way to get people to clarify. And it's actually a wonderful antidote to bullshit because it, it immediately reduces bullshit exposure because what tends to happen is people will clarify and they say, like, oh, someone's interested. <laughs> this person's interested in what I just said. And they'll tend to take a couple of steps backwards and start to clean it up. Because now they know you're listening <laughs> and you and you're thinking and you want and you're and you're interested. So they'll start to clean it up and the clarification just starts to reduce it. But then after, if they can answer what exactly they're saying, then you have to ask, well, how do you know that is true? And it's important that you ask how, because if you just ask, well, why do you think that? Usually what you'll get is a very abstract, heady kind of theoretical kind of explanation for why
0: or it, some reference it, to authority or assumed authority from well i heard it from x who i know to be knowledgeable yes right. When you ask when you ask how
1: it starts a cognitive process that starts to elicit some sort of evidence listing if they have any at all and it may be the very first time they've actually started the, to search <laughs> for it <laughs>
0: right right
1: um, and, and and if you get through the how then a good, another good question is well have you considered any alternatives You know, are there other things that uh, that that you've considered? And if you get even with these three questions, you get the answers to those three questions. You can make a pretty good assessment as to the motivations and the interest that the communicator is actually have in truth, genuine evidence and established knowledge. And then you can make a decision as to whether or not you're you're actually buying what it is that what they're selling.
0: So with that, let's, let's let's try to maybe go a little deeper. Can can you give me a couple of examples of sort of bullshit in action, if you will? Um, and and you know, bonus points for maybe business examples. I know you do a decent bit of consulting and speaking, so curious to know um, some relatable examples that that our audience might uh, might relate to, either seeing themselves in the speaking role <laughs> or in the receiving role, because we all want to think we're the we're you know we're we're the only ones actually receiving this stuff, but we we all have to be honest with ourselves and say that that is not true so
1: yes well there are there are several misconceptions and assumptions i think in the in the world of work in in the business place um and i think a lot of these ideas a lot of these assumptions they're coming from what i call the the marketplace of business ideas and it's a very lucrative uh marketplace <laughs> And there are many ideas that are that are continually going around. That I I, I think of them as dangerous half truths. You know, they're things like, oh, uh, the best the best organizations they have the best people, you know, and that financial incentives they drive company performance. Um, strategy is destiny, or great leaders are always in control of their companies. The, those types of things. Now, those those types of beliefs they often reveal assumptions. That are not blanket truths, and they often they don't pass a, a, a logic test, and the, and despite expensive consultants, they often fly in the face of of our some of our best evidence. Okay, and uh, I think a really good example of this is uh, belief that that uh, Southland Corporation. Uh, executives uh, really bought into in the 1980s. Uh, they're the corporation that that operates and franchises the 7-Eleven convenience stores. And in the late 1980s, they really bought into this idea of uh, of of getting really close to the customer and kind of developing a, a customer satisfaction like obsession. And they pumped all kinds of money, all millions of dollars, into a a uh, courtesy uh, training program within their company, and they they wanted to train all of their 7-Eleven store clerks to greet uh, every customer with you know with a greeting, a smile, eye contact, and a thank you, regardless of whether or not they they <clears throat> bought anything from the store. And they pumped millions of dollars into the training and management bonuses. Uh, and the, it, it was funny because even the whole thing at at the end was. Um, capped off with a big uh, event, was they called the Thanks a Million contest, where where regional managers that had already won for regional courtesy campaign contests ha- were eligible for a one million dollar uh, prize, a drawing, and Monty Hall, the game show host of Let's Make a Deal, was did a like a media event on it, and and a woman named Deborah Wilson from Plano, Texas, won the million bucks. Okay. Now within three years, Southland Corporation had filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy. Okay. And only after that point, people started to ask, well, you know, the thanks a million contest was really a a lot of fun, Brian, but um, was it really worth it? Was the courtesy campaign, was it, was it worth it? Did it drive sales? Did it influence all of the greetings, the smiles the thank yous and and eye contact and all of those things but there and there was 15 stores so this is where the experimental piece comes in there were 15 stores that had escaped the training program the courtesy training and so it was decided well we're going to we're going to use these 15 stores to determine through a field experiment whether or not the training actually increased the courtesy measures and whether or not it drove sales okay and it was like a questions.
0: control group, basically.
1: Yes, there was only there were these <laughs> are the types of questions that were asked only after everything had ended, right? <laughs> so, so what what happened is that half of the stores were assigned to get the training, half of them were assigned not to receive the training, and then sure enough, within like ten weeks, the smiles and the greetings, eye contact, and the thank yous, those all increased, but only from the stores that had received the training. What they did not expect to find was that the the other half of the stores that hadn't received the training actually increased significantly their sales relative to the stores that had been trained so it, it turned out that all of these courtesy measures only resulted in really long lines and a, a bunch of grouchy uh, customers waiting too long to you know get their diet coke and their uh, yes. fuel yeah. and and get yeah. in and out of there, and it turned out that most 7-Eleven store cust- customers, they equated high quality with quickness, all right. And Speed. this is some this right, is something yeah. that, that would have been uh, really well Southland Corporation really would have done well to find out from their customers, well, what did they define as high quality service before they they launched all of this. So, but but if you track this back, where did they even get the idea? <laughs> for all of this uh, this customer service obsession, it came from the Southland executives obsession and their infatuation with Peters and Waterman's classic book, In Search of Excellence, which recommended to managers to get really close to customers and develop this service obsession. That's where it all came from, but it hadn't been tested. And they just went with the assumption that, that what's worked in the past will we'll work again for us. And right, in other not,
0: contexts, potentially. That's right. right so right. it
1: was completely untested <clears throat> um, before uh, the decisions were actually made. And it, it turned out to be quite a terrible blunder for for South, Southland Corporation. But it was all based on this simple idea that what we really need to do is just get customer, have them have a, a nice, happy experience in the store. Some did, but again, it, it created... Long lines and right. and and, uh, and grouchy people, but I, I think this is one of the reasons why why Quick Trip convenience stores are doing so well these days because their their store clerks are actually very they tra- they must be trained to operate very quickly they're run, they're running like two registers at once and they're getting people in and out of the store but it's also in the name of the store you know right. Quick Trip. So, so, so customers know what it's
0: not set up for you to linger, right? It's, it's aligned with the customer's interest. They're stopping off of from wherever they're trying to get back on the road, which while it sounds like common sense, I mean, one thing we know about common sense is it's not always so common, right? I mean, that's, that's that's a story in life. That's pretty consistent. So, um, let's, you know, one of the things that I think as if I'm sitting in a chair listening to this, I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is really interesting. What I'd love for John to help me under, you know, build up my bullshit detection capabilities, right? And you just talked about some questions um, that that I would say are general, right? They apply almost to every almost every circumstance. So let's go into maybe a few specifics as it relates to business. So, what would be some specific tactics if you were, you know, to employ if you're someone who's a buyer inside an organization? You've got to buy goods or services from uh, an outside uh, an outside company. Or and then we'll talk maybe a little bit as if you're a manager or hire of people, you know. So you're in the you're in the recruiting side, trying to trying to bring somebody in, and then you're a decision maker trying to weigh different uh, different ideas from people within your own organization. So let's I gave you three. I can always circle back, but let's start with the buyer the buyer role.
1: I I think the approach would be the same for all three. In fact, and in general, I think that probably the main thing that I would recommend is. Is first understanding the difference between evidence and explanation. You know, so so if you are you know a buyer and and a seller is telling you we we've, we've got this new product that you know that is better and you know more effective than the old product. You know, um, well show me the evidence for that. You know, you know look and focus for any evidence for or against the claim is much more. Effective than hearing all of the explanation for why this is the new product, which is oftentimes just you know riddled with bullshit, you know. So it's like show me the genuine evidence as to why this is the case. And I give you a good example of that is um, when uh, in in the pharmaceuticals industry. Uh, Most people don't realize that to have approval, you know, of the FDA uh, for a new drug, the drug does not need to be more effective than the earlier leading drug. Okay, they just need a single study to show that it's more effective than a placebo. And there's no limit to how many studies you can conduct. You know, and and the the standard statistically today is that is that you have to show a difference between a placebo condition and the actual drug, and the likelihood that there's a difference um, that's just due to chance is less than five percent. So you need to show statistically that the likelihood is not greater than five percent that the difference is not just due to chance. Okay. Now most people don't realize this, but but if I have a new drug I want to push, and I run 100 studies, I've got enough money to run 100 studies, well, then statistically, I'm probably going to have at least five studies that show that there's a statistically significant difference, right? And, and there's no limit to how many experiments I can run, right? So, so that's not strong evidence um, that's just showing that it differs from a placebo. The other, the control condition, does not need to be the earlier drug, and so. But most people assume that okay, new drug, new packaging, new name, it must it be better. Be better. Right. But it often is not. It's it it often is not. It's just that what's expected by consumers. Okay, there will be new products that will always be better. But that's that's a major assumption that is often that's often unchecked. It can
0: be true but it's not always true right and in this case structurally the system isn't even set up to prove that right it's to prove against placebo not against prior let's say a generic version of some you know some drug that's gone to generic so a manufacturer's come out with a new a new compound that you you would assume is better than the old one right but that's not the standard that was used for approval doesn't mean that it's not but it doesn't mean that it is either right that it, it, to your point
1: exactly and as the buyer ask the seller show me the evidence that that shows suggest that this this new product is better as as a person who is hiring someone you know Brian you say that you can do uh, x y and z that you have these skills provide me the evidence that that you are competent in these areas you know that always is going to speak more Loudly, having like genuine evidence for it—not just someone's opinion, but genuine evidence that you have these competencies. Right. right. Um, and you mentioned, yeah. De- I mean, decision, decision making. You know, uh, and kind of weighing alternatives. Um, you know, again, the best way to, to 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 make a decision is to find the genuine evidence that that supports you know all of the advantages and lack of disadvantages of a new of a new option. Um and there is, I mean, within sales and marketing, um, uh, sometimes these people are masters of of kind of concealing the truth and kind of distracting and talking. Uh that's why a lot a lot of times they talk very fast. Um, they give you a lot of information on, on it's almost impossible to even ask a question. Um and so you have to slow down the bullshit process. Um, a bit, and you have to you have to ask questions. Well, that's a
0: strategy in and of itself. Yes,
1: yeah, you, you, it has to be slowed down, um, and you you know, you, just the process of asking questions. Once you get the ball rolling on asking basic questions, people are usually if they're listening, they're usually pretty good at at asking more important follow up questions, and then you can uncover like, well, how much real evidence is there? Because right. the fact of the matter is there's often there often really isn't much evidence for uh, you know one idea over another, one theory over another. Um, and it's it, a lot of times it's just it takes time to find that and the best way to find it is through uh, experimentation on your own and, and and looking at what what others have experienced with the, either the new product or the new or the new procedure and the new policy within within an organization.
0: I think that, that that speaks to the next question and we're kind of coming closer to the end here to try to wrap up but you know one of this I had this idea in my mind of what are some really effective examples of bullshit detection strategies you've seen employed in the workplace or in the business environment and I think it leads to this idea where have you seen really good examples of experimentation done in a way that Maybe they weren't explicitly trying to, you know, detect bullshit or cut through the bullshit, but that's in essence what happened. Maybe a couple of examples in that regard.
1: Yes, I, I think uh, two two things, uh, two very important things. Um, one is to stop rewarding bullshit, and and that what I mean by that is to to start rewarding evidence based reasoning, communication, and decision making. So so when when we reward Bullshit. We just get more of it, right? And and we we give attention to it if we legitimize it, um, or we make decisions in light of it. Um, it's it's going to be uh, very difficult to stop. But if we stop rewarding it and penalize it, you know, and and make reference to a, like we we made this decision uh, because we believe this assumption, you know, or we believe this 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 idea and and it it actually went nowhere because we actually kept an eye on some key objectives and key results since we made that decision or we went with this new company or what, whatever we did and it 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 led nowhere and and we've got the excel spreadsheet to show it <laughs> you know so so not relying on on memory to kind of detect whether or not this was a a, a useful was was a productive you know uh, idea that led to a desirable outcome right um but then the other one is i think to to make it safe make it safe and secure within the workplace within an organization to voice a concern or to voice a problem so many people use bullshit in the workplace we found that that people use work bullshit in the workplace for at least 36 different reasons and it often boils down to kind of promoting their own status or to, or connecting with others, um, but one of the ways that they pr- can promote their status um, is to take credit for everything that's going well, right, and to distance themselves from anything they don't want to be associated with right. or viewed as responsible for, right. And so, what you do is you often get a lot of people that are that are simply avoiding any association with any problems or concerns. They they won't voice it. Um, And I think one of the one of the brilliant responses to this, um, I think, comes from an example of a man that became CEO of Ford Motor Company in 2006, during a time in which uh, things were not going very well at Ford Motor Company. Uh, But a man by the name of Alan Mulally became CEO. And one of the very first things that he did in the company was he instituted this mandatory meeting for executives. And In this, a mandatory meeting in the Thunderbird room, uh, they, they had to uh, report their status using a, a, a three-color-coded kind of scheme. Uh, green for everything is go- going very well in the company and, and, or within my unit and, and projects are going as planned. Yellow meant that uh, there's a potential problem and red indicated that there's definitely a problem and there's no immediate known solution. Now it took a while, it took about eight weeks for the executives to to begin to trust the system, because you can imagine a Ford Motor Company, the the yeah. bureaucratic and factionalistic culture that was in place for decades was still alive. And uh, but but what happened is after the executives started to buy into this and say, okay, Maybe yellow and red isn't so bad because for the first seven weeks, everyone it was, all was green. green. It was you all weren't, green. you yes. weren't allowed to
0: be, a, a, other. Yes. The, you were a bad manager if you weren't green, yeah. right? That was the assumption, I'm sure.
1: Yes, but but <clears throat> but to, to Alan Malali's credit, and he, he actually pretty much single-handedly s- saved Ford Motor Company at a very, very dismal kind of economic downturn at the time. He had the Thunderbird room in this executive meeting every week, every Thursday morning at nine o'clock. He had the Thunderbird room. Line with thirty additional chairs, and each executive was required to invite two guests to just observe the meeting. They weren't a- they weren't allowed to say anything or you know ask any questions during the meeting, but they just observed the meeting, and they were usually mid level managers or factory workers or engineers. And after the meeting, Alan Mulally would ask each of the uh, attendees what they thought of the meeting, you know, and this is way his way of modeling. For everyone that you know, a a concern or a problem that would be voiced in the in the meeting, it it wasn't a, a weakness; it was a strength. You know, this is one of the only ways to you know, replace uh, sort of some of the incorrect you know conventional wisdom that might be floating around as dangerous half truths. Um, you know, with with within an organization, and so he made this this security uh, and this safety of kind of. Uh, allowing people to have a problem, you know, because problems inevitably arise and concerns inevitably arise, but to make it okay. And to not say, all right, you know, not to kill the messenger. Right. uh, But because then once those the realities, okay, this, once the truth is revealed, then it, then it's possible that everyone can work together um, to, to make a, you know, to find a solution. And that's exactly what happened in the very first meeting in which Uh, a man by the name of Mark Fields displayed the first red light in the, in the eighth week of the, of this, of this executive meeting. Um, That's exactly what happened. A lot of the other executives kind of came to, you know, they kind of rose to the occasion and they found a solution to the problem rather quickly, but they could only do that when they were dealing with the truth and they weren't hiding, hiding behind bullshit reasoning and communication. Um,
0: Well, I think that's a good one to kind of close on, and it leads me to my final question. So, when you when you think about, I mean, the, the, some of the some of the stats you gave us are somewhat sobering uh, on the uh, on the idea of bullshit. At least it's ubiquity. Um, but but when you think about the current state of bullshit in the business world, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about sort of how things are going? And and in that context. What's the one piece of advice I mean you gave a sort of a, 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 a I think a good example from before what's one piece of advice you'd give to any manager or business person if they feel like they're in a situation where I and mean, we're knee deep in this stuff and I don't really know what to do
1: Yeah I think at least two parts <laughs> I would say uh, one is to kind of attack the the claims that are that emerge and it's clearly bullshit to attack the claims not not the individuals because if you attack individuals bullshitters, they'll probably shut down and then that's the last time they're going to voice like <laughs> any, right. any kind of problem. And, and, and um, so to to focus on, on the claim, why it might be incorrect or why it may only be partially correct. Um, and then to model uh, more evidence-based reasoning, evidence-based communication and decision-making to be, to, you know, to have ready-made uh, evidence-based responses so once you figure out the answers to some of those questions that I, I, I recommended for, you know, the, the what, the how, and other alternatives, uh, once you've found sort of some of the answers to that, to then model, well, you know, I, I've thought about this this other alternative, and it turns out there's actually quite a bit of evidence, A, B, C, D, you know, for, right. for that. And maybe that's what we should be doing, um, in, you know, in the future, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, this, this sort of misinformed, um, it, it mis, you know, misdirected bullshit that we've been using because quite, quite a bit of bullshit actually comes from the most conventional management, uh, you know, ta- you know, uh, techniques and, and um, beliefs. And when you actually look at the literature, most of those conventional management uh, approaches just do not, uh, they do not fit with the recommendations made by the, you know, the existing literature. Right. Um, so I think if you tap into that, into the things that, that are like evidence-based and you model that, then it's something that you can kind of model throughout the entire organization. Like just, just as Alan Mulally did at Ford from 2006 to 2014, I believe. So.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm struck by some of the work that Dan Pink has done on both his book drive and a, the book about sales. Um, not forget about the, the broader context, but the idea of you mentioned it early on, this idea of incentive pay or incentives writ large being the the primary motivator of activity in a way that in that that, that business people have a tendency to believe we can structure incentives to get people to do exactly what we want them to. And the data don't seem to support that real well. They, they tend to have lots of unintended consequences <laughs> and, and it's a lot trickier. Uh, to to motivate people to do things a certain way, um, besides just change comp structures, um, but that's an easy thing to do, and so I think we have a tendency to fall into that trap.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah, and I, I I would one thing I would add to that too is I think kind of, kind of in addition to doing like reality tests and plausibility tests of, of new directions, I do think a, a, a rationality test is useful. Um, and it's kind of asking like Simon Sinek's, you know, famous question of like, start, you know, start with why and then answering like, well, well, why exactly are we doing this? or Are we doing this just because this is we need to do something and we should always be like, you know, uh, focusing on 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 progress or like what? Why are we actually looking for a solution? Is, is there really is there truly a problem? What's what's the, again, what's the motive? Right for the decision. I think that's an important question, even before any decision is actually made. I think it's an important thing to that's, to, that's
0: definitely fair. I think that's a good, um, a good piece of advice for us to, to sort of end on. So I always like to wrap up with a little bit of kind of, I call them personal questions. They're not really personal, but they're, they're not necessarily about the, the topic at hand, but, um, you know, I know you're busy, like a lot of us in the school years just started. So you're back at it, um, in terms of the grind, but is there anything you've watched or read lately that, uh, that you think others ought to check out?
1: Well, there's one of my uh, favorite papers I've read just recently fits with a lot of (laughs) what we've been talking about. There's a paper called, um, they they call it uh, Tips from the Top. And um, yeah, yeah, Tips from the Top, Do the Best Performers Really Give the Best Advice? And it's a paper published by Daniel Gilbert and Timothy Wilson um, to sort of, uh, you know, big big names in in social psychology. Yeah, I've heard and of Dan Gilbert found, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, what what they found uh, fits entirely with what I've been really pushing lately. So so most people believe that somebody who's been successful uh, or somebody at the top gives the best advice, and so do the people at the top <laughs> with with, <laughs> with power. They also think they they give the best advice. And what what they did a, a very clever short experiment where they they had People play uh, a very simple word game. Um, and then some of those people, they gave advice to future people who would then play the word game. Um, and the the top performers thought they gave the best advice, and the people who received advice, thinking they got it from allegedly got it from the top performers, also thought the advice was good. but but the advice actually didn't vary at all between the lowest and top performers and it had no effect whatsoever on the, the the subsequent performers in the word game. So so there's this belief that a lot of the best advice just comes from the people who are who were most successful and, and surely just by chance some people are going to even just by luck and chance end up as the top performers, but it doesn't mean they provide the the greatest advice. What it it means to me is <laughs> they often provide a lot of kind of retrospective explanations for why they did so well. And a lot of that is probably incorrect. A lot of it is.
0: They don't necessarily know why they were bullshit. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's a great paper tips from the top. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes so people can go check that out. So
1: tips from the top.
0: Okay. So last question, Um, tell us about your first technology memory as a child, and it can't be like watching TV or using the phone. It's gotta be something different than that.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's got to be <laughs> my my first Texas Instruments calculator that, that I still have. And it has my old ad- home address on the <laughs> sticker on the back of it. Um, and I I still only know how to do about three or four things on that. But um, <laughs> I, I can I can find the cosine and uh, <laughs> uh, and, and find a couple of algebra uh, Answers and 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 things on like that and and uh, my, now my my daughter uses a a, a Texas Instruments uh, and it it looks uh, I don't even want to try it's it's so souped up now that's it's it's, it's uh, changed quite a bit over. the, Why do you
0: think that memory sticks in your in your brain? What is it about that versus other things that why do you why do you, why did you why do you think you flag that one mentally?
1: That's probably the beginning of of my understanding of baseball statistics. And also- uh,
0: I figured it had to be something relevant like that. Now we're starting, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, yeah,
1: statistics go hand in hand with, with experimental social psychology. Um, so we, I, I, I calculate you know, uh, statistics and the social sciences almost every day. And so it, and it's something that most, most psychology majors don't expect. They think, you know, they've got the idea of, of uh, Dr. Phil
0: Right. More than clinical kind of sort of, yeah, the couch, the couch, mo- you know, the couch uh, metaphor.
1: Yes. Right. But psych- psychology is a science. It's a social science. And, and and we rely on experimentation and we test our ideas uh, statistically. And so it, it's something that's uh, that's carried me. But, yeah, that would be my first my, my interest in statistics would have to be baseball statistics and, and kind of figuring out eras and and uh, slugging percentages were so easy.
0: pittsburgh you had to be a pirates fan so were you part of, do you remember the we are family group were you the Willie stargill and the, the dave the cobra um
1: omar marino
0: omar marino and uh let's and uh, uh oh, kit loved- the colby the closer the sidearm closer yeah they, and they had the. i mean no offense but the ugliest uniforms of all time so ugly that they were awesome they were pretty um, they were pretty ugly yeah those mustard yellow full yellow unis were were pretty were pretty wild that's very 70s yeah so.
1: yeah dave parker and bill madlock those guys yep. i love tony pena i love those guys
0: they were. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> excellent excellent all right. Well, John, listen, thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate you joining us. I'll let you get back to work, um, cutting the bullshit for the rest of us, putting together taxonomies to help us figure out how to, uh, how to do better uh, and, and leverage evidence where we can. So uh, have a great day. Thanks again. All
1: right, all right, Brian. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you were enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would really help us out. Or you can just go old school and tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and hell, anybody else who you think might want to hear something like this to listen in. If you're on social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at cuttheshitpod. We are also on TikTok, at cuttheshitpod, all one word, where we post lots of clips from the podcast. And last but not least, You can also watch the YouTube version of the show on our YouTube channel, at Plow Networks. Until next time, take care and have a great day.